Now I ask if you will to turn again in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We began 2 Timothy last week. The pastoral epistles. This is the last letter written by Paul the Apostle. He is in the Mamertine prison and he is writing to Timothy, his protege. We opened with the first, uh, the first verses last week for the first seven, and we will begin at verse 8 and read to the end of the chapter this morning. Let's bow in prayer briefly. Our Father, we ask that as the word of the Lord is preached, that our mind's attention will be engaged, that we will actually read the text intelligently, that we will give our full attention to it, that we will not allow our minds to wander, and that our soul's affections will be truly gripped by the truths that we find here. May we be as Christians thoroughly challenged to be faithful to the Savior who has faithfully saved us from our sins. And we ask that those who are with us today who do not know Christ would find their hearts to be pierced and cut and that you would show them that they need the salve, the balm of Gilead, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus who died for sinners and rose from the dead alone to save them as you have us from our sins. Hear our prayers for we ask it in the name of Christ, our sovereign King. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning with verse 8. This is the word of God. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Three times... I wonder if you noticed the Apostle Paul speaks in these verses of being unashamed. Uh, He says it there in verse 8, have a look, Uh, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Again in verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And verse 16, where he speaks of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my Chains. Very obviously, the theme that the Apostle Paul has in mind in this section of Scripture 
is being unashamed of Christ, being unashamed of the gospel. Now, that raises an immediate question. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Or are you ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ? What true believer here cannot think of those times in which we have, to our shame, been ashamed of the gospel? Perhaps it has been a time where testimony should have been born and we were ashamed to name name the name of Christ. Perhaps you thought someone knew much more than you did about, say, uh, science, and so you were afraid to to espouse the biblical doctrine of creation, which is essential to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Perhaps you were involved in a sin, and you were ashamed to speak for Christ because your heart wasn't right, or because others around you would say, you're a Christian and you're living this way. I wonder if you can remember times, maybe even this week, in which you have been ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, may the Lord take this text, may he bring us to faith and repentance, strengthen our souls, so that we are no longer ashamed of Christ, who saves us from our sins. So let's turn to the text and let's see what it says about being unashamed of the gospel. And the first thing that you see is this, do not be ashamed but rather share in Christ's suffering. Do not be ashamed, but rather share in Christ's suffering. Now, there is no indication that Timothy was ashamed, uh, where he says in verse 8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, and he's writing to Timothy. The verb indicates do not start being ashamed. And so he's warning Timothy not to allow this false trait into his life, not to be dominated by this tendency. People who owed their very souls to Paul, as he is in the Mamertine prison in Rome, those who should have stood with him, as we will see later in the text, in his hour of need are ashamed of Paul and are abandoning him. Rather, he says to Timothy, don't be like that. Respond to the call to suffer for the gospel in the power of God. And so verse 8 says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but, you see, rather, but, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So there are only two choices, faithfulness or unfaithfulness. We either share in Christ's sufferings or we avoid to our shame Christ's sufferings. To be unfaithful to Paul, he is saying to Timothy, is really to be unfaithful to Christ. Did you notice how he put this? Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Not Nero's prisoner, Christ's prisoner. And always when Paul speaks of himself as a prisoner, he speaks of himself as the prisoner of Christ. I, Paul, am suffering for the gospel. I am right where God intends for me to be. I am not Nero's prisoner, not ultimately. I am the prisoner of the sovereign head and king of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has put me in this place of suffering for his own glory. And so Paul is exactly where he intends his son to be. Would you rather suffer than be unfaithful to Christ? That's really the question. And the term that is used here, suffer with me, it means to suffer evil together. Timothy... Join with me in my suffering. As I wear these chains to God's glory, at least within your heart, wear those chains with me. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, I am Christ's apostle suffering Timothy. 
you share those sufferings with me. Someone has said, any suffering at the hands of wicked men because of the gospel should not alarm us, but rather cause us to see more clearly whose side we are on. You've been watching the news, some of you, you've been watching what's happening in Egypt, but I wonder how many of you understand what's happening to Christians in Egypt. It's really horrific and terrible. Churches being burned, uh, people who uh, know the Lord Jesus Christ or profess his name uh, that are being killed and, and, and tortured and tormented, some of them homeless. Uh, they're having to name the name of Christ and be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ under the the horrific terrorism of the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, if you do not submit your thinking to the Word of God, you will say, what's the use of this battle? But if you're a real believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you submit your heart to the Word of God, you will say, who has a choice? Indeed, I embrace this call, not that I long to suffer, but I long to serve Christ. And if this is what He has for me, then I embrace this call to suffer for the cause of God and truth. Now, Paul does not leave Timothy without encouragement, nor us without encouragement in this passage. In the context of this battle, he says, is the sovereign grace of God in saving us from our sins. And so he goes on and he says in verse 9, "...who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began." Salvation, says Paul, I want you to remember, Timothy, in the midst of all this battle and all of this suffering, salvation is entirely of grace. God's salvation is no afterthought. He says very clearly in verse 10 that it was before eternal times, or it could be translated before time of ages. Before there ever was such a thing as time, Christian, We are saved because the Lord determined to save us in his electing decree before the world was formed. Now, why does Paul say this here? Why is it even here? And some of the commentators say, well, Paul's just doing what he sometimes does. He's going off into praise. Well, yes, but there's more to it than that. The Apostle Paul is speaking to Timothy about this here as he puts upon him this call to be unashamed in the sufferings that he must endure Because nothing is more supportive and securing to our hearts than the knowledge that whatever men may do to us, the Lord has determined in his eternal counsel to save his people. Essentially what the Apostle Paul is saying is, let Satan roar in rage, he can never dislodge God's love from his own. He is determined to save us by his grace, and saved by his grace his people will be. But there's more. This salvation was manifested. This salvation determined in eternity past was manifested in time. And so in verse 10 he says, And which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This salvation, determined in eternity past, has been manifested in time, in the incarnation of our Lord, his obedience to the law, his going to the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to heaven. And what did he do through all of this? Paul says, Timothy, this is what he did. He abolished death. He abolished death. 
He paid the penalty. The wages of sin is death. He rose from the dead. He removed its sting. And Paul speaks with this remarkable confidence of the abolition of death as he himself faces death and as he calls Timothy to suffer for him. You see, no pagan Roman could have spoken with this confidence. Barrow, in his famous little book, The Romans, I took it off my shelf this week and read about it, speaks of the tombs and the, uh, the epitaphs that you would read on the, the Roman tombs. And he says there was a general pathetic hopelessness. But over against that hopelessness that characterized Roman culture and our culture, the Apostle Paul says, don't you see, Timothy, you're going to suffer, but Christ has abolished death. Christ brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. So why is Paul stressing this? Because it sets suffering for Christ in its proper context, does it not? Yes, we will suffer for Christ's name. But we are chosen of God. We will suffer and perhaps be killed for the faith. But Christ has conquered death. We will suffer for the gospel, perhaps be killed. But life and immortality was brought to light in Christ. We share in suffering, but we gain the crown. And this is the attitude that permeates the Apostle Paul's life and upon which he obviously dwells as he is coming nearer and nearer to death. So that in chapter 4 of this very epistle, uh, chapter 4, you will see in verses 6 through 8, the apostle confessing, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. Now, does that confidence, Christ abolish death, come what may, I'm his, he'll keep me. Can you say that that characterizes your life and your heart and determines your conscience and your actions? The year was 1900, and it was in China during the Boxer Rebellion. Over 200 missionaries were killed and uh, 32,000 Chinese Christians were murdered. In that one year, 32,000 Christians, just because they were Christians. One of those Christian missionaries was a young pregnant woman whose name was Lizzie Atwater, there with her husband to minister to the Chinese. And she wrote a final letter to her parents, August 3rd, 1900. Would you like to hear it? Dear ones, I long for a sight of your dear faces, but I fear we shall not meet on earth. I am preparing for the end very quietly and calmly. The Lord is wonderfully near, and he will not fail me. I was very restless and excited while there seemed a chance of life, but God has taken away that feeling. And now I just pray for grace to meet the terrible end bravely. The pain will soon be over, and oh, the sweetness of the welcome above. My little baby will go with me. I think God will give it to me in heaven, and my dear mother will be so glad to see us. I cannot imagine the Savior's welcome. 
Oh, that will compensate for all of these days of suspense. Dear ones, live near to God and cling less closely to earth. There is no other way by which we can receive that peace from God which passeth understanding. I must keep calm and still these hours. I do not regret coming to China, but I'm sorry I have done so little. My married life, two precious years, have been so very full of happiness. We will die together, my dear husband and I. I used to dread separation. If we escape now, it will be a miracle. I send my love to all of you and the dear friends who remember me. Twelve days after this letter was written, Lizzie Atwater, her unborn baby, and six other missionaries were hacked to death by the guards. You see what he says to Paul? Don't be ashamed. But live for Christ. Embrace the sufferings to which Christians are called. Second thing we see, do not be ashamed, but rather be sure. Do not be ashamed, but rather be sure. Where he goes on and says in verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do. What's the reason that I'm suffering? And he goes on to say, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Now Paul stresses that he is unashamed. I'm here in this horrible Mamertine prison, but I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now there's a translation question here in verse 12, and it's an important one. Uh, the word that, um, that is where we have what has been entrusted to me, the word there really is deposit. Uh, the same word deposit that we have already seen in 1 Timothy and that we also read in this uh, chapter. And so the question is, should it be translated the way the ESV has translated it here as we read it this morning? Look at it again. I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Okay, the deposit that has been given to me. Or should it be translated, some of you know the authorized version, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Is it what has been committed to me, the deposit, or is it the deposit I've committed to him? Which is it? Now the ESV has opted for the idea that it's the deposit that is committed to Paul. The authorized version and some others for the deposit that Paul has committed to the Lord. Well, where does your pastor come on that? Well, I'll tell you. What has been entrusted to me makes sense because in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, uh, verse 20, he says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And in 2 Timothy 1.14 he says to Timothy, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. But I don't think that's what he means in verse 12. Rather, I think he is saying, I have given the deposit, that is to say, my life to the Lord, and he'll guard it and he will keep it. I think the Apostle Paul is playing on this idea of deposit. It's more consistent with actually the literal translation, my deposit, 
to think that he's speaking of the deposit that he has given to the Lord. It is more consistent with the emphasis on his life and needs at this moment. The God in whom I put my trust. Paul, I think, is not only concerned with the deposit that is being passed down, which is the great concern of the pastoral epistles, the deposit entrusted to him, the gospel to be passed down. But he is also concerned to show that God cares for him and the deposit of his life that has been entrusted to the Lord. And he is saying, Timothy, I can trust God with my life. I have entrusted my life to him. Timothy, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. No matter what happens to me, I can trust him. And you know what, Timothy? You know what, congregation? So can you. Until that day. What does that mean? You know what that means. Until Jesus comes. Until the return of Christ. Until the day of judgment. Until the resurrection occurs. Until that day. So as we suffer in this fallen world, and fear comes in our hearts, what's the antidote to fear? The antidote to fear is knowing God's loving, caring promise will take us all the way home. When James Alexander of Princeton lay dying, his wife quoted the words, I know in whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep... And James lovingly interrupted and said, that's not how the text reads. You see, dear wife, I will not even have a preposition come between me and my Savior. It's not in whom, but I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. What a way to die. What a way to live. And Paul's confidence becomes another incentive for Timothy's obedience so that he says to him in verse 13 and 14, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So you see, Timothy, I've entrusted myself to him. I've given him the good deposit of my life. And therefore, the good deposit that I pass on to you, I know you will guard and you will be faithful to preach and teach. William Hendrickson made the statement, the slogan, it does not matter what you believe, just so you are serious in whatever you believe, is flatly contradicted in the pastoral epistles. Nevertheless, the spirit in which one clings to the truth and passes it along to others does matter, faith and love in Christ Jesus. So let all of this, Timothy, call upon you to guard the good deposit. And so the Apostle Paul moves on a third thing I want you to see. Do not be ashamed. Rather, 
extend the gospel. Do not be ashamed, rather extend the gospel. Now let's read these verses, these last verses again, beginning at verse 15. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So he speaks of those who were ashamed of the gospel. He mentions two of them by name, and obviously he mentions them by name because they stand out as people who should have known better. They should have been there with Paul. They should have stood with Paul. They should have known better. But not only these two, but he says, all in Asia, all in Asia turned away from me. Now, Asia here is the Roman province of Asia. It's it's western Turkey. It was the province designated by the Roman Empire as Asia. Ephesus was the capital. He's saying, all of those who could have been of some help and some service to me in Asia have turned away from me. Actually, the term that he uses here, apostrophason, is a strong word that really means repudiate. They repudiated Paul. But there was one, and his name will go down in records. We don't know a lot about him, do we? But it will go down in the, the hearts and lives of Christians as a blessed name, it's the name Onesiphorus. I don't expect to see that name at baptisms very often, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's a great name because of uh, what he did. And uh, he says in verse 16, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. So, He obviously knew Paul was in trouble, went to Rome, and he looked for him. Now, that wasn't an easy task. No cell phones, right? He couldn't call up, Paul, where are you? Oh, I'll use use this GPS, and I'll... Rome's a big place. It's a dirty place. So he went from Christian to Christian. He went, perhaps even, perhaps he went from guard to guard. Maybe he found some Roman soldiers screwed up his courage and went to some great Roman soldier and said, I wonder, excuse me, have you seen Paul? He's a friend of mine, Um, a little Jewish man, balding. He loves the books and the parchments. He reads all the time. Uh, Maybe he squints a lot. He has weak eyes. Have you you seen uh, my friend Paul? And maybe the soldier said, you know what? A couple of years ago, he was chained to me. And that little guy wouldn't shut up. All he talked about was Jesus and the resurrection. But you know, I think he's been with that soldier since then. Ask him. So maybe he went, maybe that soldier pulled him aside and said, Paul, you know what, I was, I was really impressed with him. I've been thinking about that message that he's been preaching ever since. Evidently, one led to another. I don't know how. And he found... Paul 
I guess, in the Mamertine prison and somehow ministered to his needs. That was a dangerous thing to do, wasn't it? Identify with Paul? Identify with this man who was about to be beheaded? Identify with Paul during the Neronian persecution? Dangerous thing indeed to do. What a blessing to support faithful ministers. And I want to say what a blessing it is as I strive to be faithful that there are people all around me who support me. Who say to me all the time, Pastor, I'm praying for you. Who encourage. Paul didn't have many like that. Not at this stage in his life. Not in Rome. But Onesiphorus was one of those. But here's the thing. If you think that Onesiphorus just woke up one day and said, Oh, I think I'll be faithful today and go to Rome and help Paul, then you've got another thing coming. Now look at the verse again. There's verse 18. May the Lord grant him to find mercy on, uh, from the Lord on that day, and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Now, I don't know what that service was. But Paul is saying, this Onesiphorus who came to Rome, sought me out, and has ministered to me, he has been faithful all along. So he did not all of a sudden find it in him to stand with Paul. Onesiphorus was faithful all along the way in small ways. Now get this. It's simple, but it's important Would you be ready when the test comes? I mean the test. That great thing that may face you in life where you really have to say, I will or will not stand for Christ. Would you be ready for that day? Then you be faithful now as a Christian. Day by day by day by day in the small things. Believe, repent daily. Be faithful daily. And then you'll be ready when the big issue comes. Now let's think about some other things. Let's bring it to a conclusion, not quickly. The text says, don't be ashamed. Verse 8, do not be ashamed. Verse 12, I am not ashamed. Verse 16, was not ashamed of my chains. So we're going to be tested. You high school students will be tested. Will you stand for Christ? Will you live for Jesus? You men in your businesses will be tested. You women in business places will be tested. You will be tested in your homes. Will I stand for Jesus? But... We're going to be tested in new ways. I think it's pretty clear. In new ways, in the areas, in the the area of rights of conscience in our country, in ways we've never been tested before. A nurse refuses to participate in an unbiblical medical procedure. Notice the quotes medical procedure. A photographer is fined because he refuses to take photographs 
at a homosexual marriage. Again, notice the quotes, always in quotes. There is no such thing. A church refuses to hire someone that does not represent the biblical viewpoint, who knows where it is going to lead. But if we compromise in these things, then we will compromise when they come and tell us, don't preach the gospel. And so we must be faithful and stand for Christ and be willing to pay the price. You know, if I, if I don't do this, I'll have to close my business. Yep. You just may have to close your business. I don't know how I'm going to live. I know. It may come to that. But we may not compromise Christ. Because what the world is really after, the world doesn't care if you're a Christian, as long as you're a Christian in this room. What the world is really after is you're being a Christian in the public square. That's what they don't want. When you leave this room, to put it another way, the concern of the world is not that you profess faith in Christ, as long as you coexist. The world wants us to tone down the exclusivity of the gospel. It's when you come and say, Jesus is the only way. He is the only mediator between God and man. He is the only Savior. He's the only Redeemer. You cannot be saved from hell without Him. You cannot go to heaven without Him. You cannot know God without Him. Your religion is a sham without Him. When you preach and teach the exclusivity of the gospel and hold that up in the public square... That's what the world is bent on suppressing. That's what is hated. But you see, Mohammed was not the second person of the Trinity who became incarnate and was born of a virgin. Buddha didn't obey the law or pay the price on the cross and was not raised from the dead. There's no philosophy that can do that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so the temptation will be to be ashamed. Who sees Christ at right, God's right hand, the judge of all the world, the all-powerful God? You Christians, you're so foolish. You people must be ignorant. You people must be stupid. People who've never read a page of Augustine, who don't know the great intellectual Christian tradition of the, of the West, look at Christians and say, you're stupid. Let's look at a couple of passages. Let's turn to Mark's Gospel. Mark 8.
34 through 38. Mark 8, beginning with verse 34, and he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, and these are Jesus' words, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's turn to, Mark, uh, to Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 26. Matthew 10, 26 and following. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father. He was in heaven. It couldn't be more plain. If we confess Christ, he will confess us before the Father. If we are ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of us. He will not confess us. Turn to Romans, the first chapter. Verse 16. You all know the verse, but I want you to see it with your own eyes. Paul says, Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel. You see the word? I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Actually, that's a literary figure. It's called litotes. It's understatement. What he really means is I am ecstatic about the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So that's what Paul is saying to Timothy in this section that we have studied together this morning. Being unashamed will not make you a Christian. You must trust in Christ alone for your salvation. It is grace through faith alone. Being unashamed will not make you a Christian, but being ashamed is characteristic of the Christian life. So where today do I need, do you need to name Christ's name? Where do you need to stand that you're not standing? 
In what small ways do you need to be faithful so that when the test comes, you will be ready for the test? But I would have you to remember, people of God, that always in Paul, it is the rich theology of sovereign grace that sustained him and will sustain you as well in the midst of the battle. And so let's conclude by turning to those great words of assurance in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. If Paul has said in 2 Timothy, I know whom I have believed and persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day, he says the same in more expanded words in Romans 8.31, this great paean of praise. Romans 8.31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.